welcome to episode three of Miles in the Mitten podcast, a podcast aimed to tell the stories of runners of all levels from around the state of Michigan. Your hosts are yours truly, Ryan Squanda, along with Colin Riley. And today we had our second guest on the show. We had Zach Ornelas, who is a 2013 graduate of the University of Michigan, where he ran cross country and track, a 2020 Olympic marathon trials qualifier, as well as a teacher and coach at Celine High School. Um, I thought we had a pretty nice conversation with them. It's kind of cool that we're all English teachers. I know you, you and Zach are English teachers and coaches, and I'm currently in school at Eastern Michigan to try and be an English teacher and hopefully go into the path of coaching. And that was probably my favorite part of uh, our interview today was when we were discussing kind of topics like that. And he had a lot of good advice. You had a lot of good advice for someone like me going into it. And it was just interesting to hear how you guys balance your training and your running and your coaching and everything like that. Totally. I, uh, you know, it's great that we were able to have a space for us to talk about that. And genuinely, I think, you know, the best part of teaching is, is, you know, bragging about it to people who we think could be good teachers. And I know you're going to be a good teacher and coach. So that too was my favorite part of the podcast. And I I, I would also say, you know, we talked at length about um, Zach's post-collegiate career, which is been great and continues to be great. And uh, I would say the highlight of that for me was him retelling the story of his Olympic trials qualifying race at the 2018 California International Marathon. Uh, I think I'd heard that story on a run before, but to hear it, him retell it today was was really compelling. Yeah, and I also liked the part at the end, so people need to stick around, where he doubts Nick Willis's basketball skills. Uh, so, so stick around for, for that uh, discussion. Absolutely. All right, well, here we go with uh, Zach Ornelas. All right, welcome to Miles in the Mitten podcast, episode three. Today we have Zach Ornelas on the podcast. He's a 2013 graduate of the University of Michigan, where he ran cross country and track. Uh, he's a 2020 Olympic marathon trials qualifier and a teacher and coach in Celine. So it's, it's actually kind of funny. It's like an English, it's a running podcast, but maybe also an English teacher podcast too. Uh, but uh, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. So how, how are you guys doing today? Hanging in there. Yeah, it's a, it was an interesting day today, which I'm sure <laughs> will come up later in the podcast. Fun day to be a teacher. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I'm interested as well um, to, to hear. I've, we've talked a lot on our runs, Zach, but I think to do a little deeper dive today will be fun. For sure. Let's, let's do it. All right. And so I guess just to maybe backtrack to maybe like the, the start of your running days, I know we're looking into your past a little bit. You're from Texas. So how, how did you end up coming to the University of Michigan back in the day? So I, st- I still don't even know what to um, say when people ask, where are you from? Um, I graduated from high school in Texas, but my dad was in the army. So I can't, I can't remember. I've lived in eight or nine states, maybe even 10. I moved every one to two years for the first 18 years of my life. I was in fourth through seventh grade. I was in one part of Texas. Uh, and then in eighth grade, I was in Kansas. Ninth and 10th grade, I was in upstate New York. And 11th and 12th grade, a different part of Texas. So I think the longest I've ever lived somewhere consecutively is Michigan now. So I've been here since 2009. Um, so I I'm like kind of a Michigander. I feel like I know the state pretty well, um, but I'm, I'm from basically all over. I've lived in like every corner of this country at this point. Um, but really it was, it was uh, my, my college visit, my official recruiting visit to U of M 
um, where I get to sit two rows behind Michael Phelps um, on the 50 yard line in 2008 at the Olympic, like uh, U of M Olympic alumni honoree game. And, you know, this is after Phelps' 2008 games, which were fairly impressive. Um, and Michigan overcame, uh, I think, 21 point, maybe even 28 point um, halftime de deficit versus Wisconsin. And I, I was there at that game sitting behind Michael Phelps. And after the game, we walked around until two or three in the morning. I was just this wide eyed high schooler that even at two in the morning, everyone on campus was out, was smiling, just looked so happy. And, and after that visit, I was like, I have to commit to this. Um, I committed on the at the airport before even flying home. I, it was Coach Warhurst at the time. And I told him, I'm coach, I'm, I'm coming here. This is, this is the best college I've visited. I don't want to go anywhere else. So I, I canceled my visit to Wisconsin the following weekend. Um, and Wisconsin, I think, would go on to win two national championships and four Big Ten titles in uh, the next four years. So I don't, I don't regret my decision, but I do think about, oh, what if I had gone to Wisconsin? And yeah, you mentioned that. So, and you have stuck around, st stuck around the area. So how, how did you like your, your experience going to the University of Michigan and running there? It was um, a very interesting experience. My first year was with the legendary coach Warhurst, Ron Warhurst um, of the sub four book fame um, and, you know, coaching Sully and Willis and Webb for a time. Um, and then he retired after my freshman year and brought in a new coach, um, Alex Gibby from William and Mary and a bit of a tumultuous three years there. I always got along fine with him, but I overtrained like crazy for three years. I was running 130 miles a week as a senior um, at very low six minute per mile average uh, was tired for two, the last two years of college. I was tired every day, seven days a week. You're only allowed a day off if you got hurt. Um, it was just running myself into the ground and I would plateau pretty early. I'd run a PR the second meet of the season and then either run that time again or about 10 seconds slower for the rest of the season. So loved my classmates and the experience of getting to run division one track and cross country. Um, but I, I left a whole lot of seconds out on the table that I'm pretty much now better than I was in college, um, you know, seven years later. And, and when you did, graduate college or, or how how did you approach I guess like your next step in running I know you you, you did fall into marathons pretty quickly but what what what, what was your decision making process at that point it was so my senior year of uh cross country camp I ran a 130 mile week with a six mile easy day to end that that week it was just two, two runs every single day and and the Saturday of that week um, with one of my teammates, I went for a 25 mile long run. And I remember thinking like, I, I'm gonna have to run the marathon next year. This it would make perfect sense to do that. It'd be kind of silly to run all of this insane mileage not to. And then about a uh, two months later, I was on like a 22 mile run in the middle of cross country season um, on the same day as the Detroit marathon. I remember we kind of got rolling on that, on that run. And I remember if I just kept that pace for four more miles, I would have placed third at the, the marathon that day. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do Detroit one year from now. As soon as I graduate, I will do the Detroit marathon. I actually didn't even graduate. Um, I had, I did four and a half years to finish up my student teaching for the last semester. So my, my fifth year or half of a fifth year, I, I had no more eligibility and I threw myself right into the marathon. Um, and it went really well, but the culmination of years of overtraining 
really, really had um, built up. And immediately after that marathon, I spent essentially the next year and a half uh, injured. And when I wasn't, when I was finally back on my feet at any time during that year and a half, I ran a string of very horrible races. So I jumped into the marathon and then essentially was on my butt for a year and a half after that. How old were you when you won Detroit? Were you 22? Yeah, well, I think I might have been, yeah, I was 22, like freshly 22. Sure. And obviously as, are you, you're 29 now? Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously as a 22 year old, you know, hindsight is 2020, but how difficult were the next several years like to, to win Detroit and run such an impressive time as, as you did? I'm not sure if we mentioned it, but I think was it 220, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how difficult was that to kind of pull yourself out of that rut? Uh, of injury and disappointment. Yeah, um, it was really hard. So at least when I ran that, I still was in the fantasy world. I mean, I was still technically in college. I was student teaching full time Monday through Friday. But like when I went home, I didn't have to grade or, or really lesson plan. I was doing the same lessons that my my mentor teacher was was giving me. I was able to plan some stuff, but as the both of you know, that you're still like in college. It's certainly not easy, but you know, I was able to sleep and I was able to wake up and get a morning double in still pretty early, but I knew I'd be able to go to bed on time. I wouldn't have a bunch of extra tests to do. Um, so it was pretty easy, I would say, to, to do that first marathon because it was just like I was training with the team a lot as well. I was, I was joining the U of M guys anytime I could and I had company for most of my long runs. Um, afterwards, it was much tougher because I graduated in December from U of M in 2013 and um, started teaching at an inner city school in Detroit um, in January, their first day after Christmas break. So I spent two weeks, not as a college, two weeks after graduating from college and then right into a classroom in a situation where they hadn't had a teacher in that room for four months and they had a substitute for four months. Um, and it was, it, it did not go well. Um, I was not ready for, for teaching in, in that classroom. Um, felt like I did not learn enough in the school of education. Um, paired with an injury, a hip injury that I got, it partially tore my hip labrum and, um, the rest of that semester, as the both of you kind of probably do at the same time, I measure years in school years. I don't measure them in the actual normal years. So the rest of that year was a school year. I was pretty much injured. I thought about quitting running. Um, there were times where a week would go by, even when I was healthier that I maybe ran twice, three times, pretty much that lasted for like six or seven months. And I was thinking of packing it in. Um, and then I, it's just always been something I've always done. I've been running since I was six or seven years old. I started to find the join it again. Uh, but then I didn't really know what to do in terms of a plan. I was no longer being coached by my college coach. Um, he's left Michigan at that time to go to, I think it was like UNC, um, Charlotte or something. So I was left coachless. I coached myself for a couple of years and I did okay. I ran 220 again. Then I ran a couple of 223s at didn't set any PRs for the entire period of coaching myself. And I started to find that, um, I don't know, it's really easy to bail on a workout if, if you're coaching yourself. Um, and I'm, I'm a proponent of taking an off day whenever you need an off day, but it was becoming to become, uh, it was starting to have a lot of off days. Um, if I was tired or if I don't, didn't feel like doing anything and I was just kind of copying training plans that I saw on let's run and, uh, you know, copying the training plan of a 204 marathoner wasn't probably what I should have been doing. Um, it, so there, there was like three years where, and my wife can attest that 
like the dark years <laughs> immediately after college, just kind of bouncing around, signing up for races. I was not prepared for doing okay in them. Like, I think I took like seventh at a trail championship, but like it wasn't super deep beyond like the top five. Um, and then finally I, I, I got a coach um, who preached easy days, easy, slow down, decrease your mileage and, and just kind of not take it so seriously. And ever since then I've now essentially beat, every PR I've ever had just in the last three years. And did you, what, did you like, I guess, maybe the learning experiences you went through in, in those couple of years then? Yeah. I mean, yeah, hindsight is definitely 2020. And I, I do think sometimes like, wow, I wonder if I had gotten this thing right and like taken my time to get into the marathon and, and train smarter. And even if I had trained smarter in college, like I do think I could have run 213 or 214 by now. I still think I can run 213 or 214, but that's, something I have to do in the future. Um, but I do like that I've learned a lot of lessons the hard way because at the very least, I think it makes me a little bit more wise in my running. I don't really race poorly often uh, these days because I feel like I go into races pretty prepared and mentally I, I just know how it's going to go. I, I can tell you on the day, like I know what my fitness is. I know I'm going to run here. Um, and it's it's helped me in, in coaching uh, to, to prevent people from overrunning and overtraining and, and to kind of know what kids have have gone through because I've gone through the same kind of things. And I guess, uh, that, that two seventeen that you ended up running at CIM, I believe in, it was in 2018. Mm -hmm. So what, what was like your build up to that? And were, were you surprised at how you broke out at that race or what, what, what were you expecting going into it? I think the, the kind of godsend for me in that marathon is I did not do a marathon build up for it at all. I had uh, signed up for the U.S. 50-mile road championships that fall um, that were in October in State College, Pennsylvania on a, on a road, but it was a, a gravel and dirt road that had like 6,000 feet of climbing or 5,000 feet of climbing over the 50 miles. Um, and I won that, and I did pretty well. I cracked six hours for the first time in a 50-miler, um, and I had signed up for CAM, I think, the week before that race. Um, so this was in October and I, I had heard that maybe they had a couple extra spots left in the elite field. So like the first week of October, I sent an email to the um, elite race director and said, Hey, I was just wondering, do you happen to have any more spaces in, in your race? Um, I'm, I don't even need a hotel or anything. And she messaged back and said, yeah, our, our hotel spots are full, but um, I can get you a spot on the line. I was like, I was like, okay, cool. So I did the 50 miler. It went well. And then like a, took a couple of days off, started training. Like the first workout I did was like four miles at marathon pace. And keep in mind, this is about six weeks out from the race. Um, I did four miles at marathon pace and it felt like I was absolutely hammering. I was like, Oh yeah, there's no way I'm going to run very fast at this marathon. Um, and then I, I don't really know. I, two weeks later, I was already running marathon pace for 10 miles comfortably. Um, I was like, Hmm, okay. This, this might happen. Unsure. I, I didn't, I had, 219 in the back of my mind like I thought I could maybe pull it off I mean it was my it was going to be my first marathon ever and and vapor flies it's like I'm, I might have enough of an edge here with the downhill net downhill it's still got some hills course and some super shoes um it wasn't until two weeks out from the race that I did a, a workout um it's five miles four miles three miles two mile one mile with a one mile float between each and I was supposed to run the five mile four mile and three mile at marathon pace, which the goal at that time was going to be like 519, which I think is the, or 518, which I think is the, um, two, 
19 cutoff pace or whatever. And I ran for the five mile, I think 517 for the four mile, 517 for the three mile, 515 for the two mile was like 505. And then for the mile 453 with all of the uh, recovery miles between like 540 and six minutes. So I ended up doing like 25 miles a day at 530 average um, on a really, really cold day on Heinz drive. Um, then hopped in a van immediately after and, and drove to Terre Haute, like I think an hour after finishing, drove to Terre Haute uh, to watch my boys race uh, Nike cross regionals the next day. Um, I, I finished that workout. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to run 218. I'm, I'm pretty like, I could have run 218 this morning. Um, then I got a cold immediately after that and I had to scratch. I was going to do the, the turkey trot in Detroit and the 10K. I was going to run the 10K hard as my final tune-up. Um, had to take like three days off one week before the race. I was at my parents' house in Midland with the sniffles, feeling awful. My last workout seven days out from the race was two by two mile at marathon pace. I did one two mile at 515 and then bailed on the second two mile. And I, my parents bought plane tickets and hotel rooms to go watch were, you know, biting their, their lip while I was over there for Thanksgiving. And I was like, I don't know, I'll just do the best I can. That week going into the race, I just jogged all week to try and get rid of my cold. Um, and then the morning of the race, I woke up and like the day before I'd still taken like some suit of bed or something. The morning of the race, I woke up with not a single drop of fluid in my sinuses and felt amazing. And I was like, Oh, this could be a special day. Um, and then CIM is just one of those amazing races where you have a hundred guys going out at the pace, sharing water bottles. Um, I didn't even need nutrition or anything. I think I had on race, like on course nutrition. I think I qualified just enough that I had like some bottles, but I, I honestly didn't need it. We'd get to a, an aid station and someone would yell, I've got Martin, I've got whatever. And then would just pass it around. Um, and it was about 10 miles into that race. I still had in the back of my mind that, that doubt that I'm sure you have both had where you think like, Oh, it's too good to be true. Like this is going to go poorly. I've been in the races where they go poorly, but this is fun. I'll remember, I'll remember what it felt like at this point. And then even at mile 13, I was like, Oh, I hit it perfectly. If I die at mile 16, I'll call this a success because then I can go on my log and be like, okay, I've done 16 of 26. I just need to work on that last 10. And then at like mile 19, I started to get like silent in my head. I was like, don't think about anything. You were right on pace. Just, just don't think, don't, don't ruin this. It was about mile 22 where I like then no, no longer had any doubt. I was running with a group of five guys at mile 22. And I, I just looked at them and said, guys, we, we could run like 530 pace to the line and still get this time. And they're like, dude, we can run like 545 pace to the line and still get the time. I was like, oh, Okay. And then two of them said, yeah, we are from Atlanta and we don't have a time yet. This, this would mean everything to us. And I ran with them until mile 25, um, just like with some light chatter because we were getting pretty excited. Once we got to 24, they were like starting to high five each other in our little group. Um, and then with a, a mile to go, I kind of did a little surge away because I was, I was feeling awesome. So still though, so those 19 miles where it's like, nah, this isn't going to like, I'm going to slow down. I know how this goes. Like you feel great. And then all of a sudden you don't feel great, which is the marathon essentially. Um, but that's maybe the only marathon I've ever run where step one to the last step, I felt pretty much fantastic. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you I was going to run the time after that day where I did the workout the, the next two weeks spent sick. It, it wasn't until about nine mile 19. I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is the feeling I had two weeks ago. That's an incredible story. And I believe it ended up in, in runner's world. Did it not? Yeah, I think so. 
I, I don't know if I recommend the not training for a marathon and then going for a pace three minutes faster than your PR, but it worked for me. Hey, I had a, a similar experience 10 minutes back at CIM the next year. And uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever feel that good on a marathon again. I think I put that in my Strava, uh, <laughs> my Strava detail, but um, no, that's an amazing story. And, and, you know, fast forward a little over a year and, and you find yourself towing the line in Atlanta. So could you walk us through the Olympic trials race? And, and also, I think this might be a good time to, could you uh, explain for us the, the Tracksmith OTQ program and, and what it meant to, to be a part of that? Yeah, so I was really lucky to, um, to just kind of be plugged into Tracksmith um, pretty early um, because one of the, the early employees at, at Tracksmith was um, Cole, I don't know how to say his last name correctly, San Saverino. He was working with their podcast in Boston for a while, but um, he was an Eastern Michigan grad who I'd uh, bumped into a couple of times in college. I actually met him at uh, club cross country nationals in um, Lexington, whatever year that was. I think I was 2017 or, or so. And I had bumped into him there and um, talked to him about Tracksmith just offhand at, at the bar after the race. And I, I think I was, I just like pointed at his jacket. It's like, Oh, Cole, that's such a cool jacket, man. Like I have like one Tracksmith shirt, but it's a little expensive for me. Um, and then, a week later, I, I commented on his Strava saying, Hey, Cole, like I'm about to order some Tracksmith pants. Like, can you tell me what size I, sh I should get for my height or, you know, like a hundred dollars. I want to make sure they're the perfect size. And then instead of commenting there, he sent an email to me tagging uh, like two of the main employees at Tracksmith saying, yo, my friend Zach won the Detroit marathon. You should hook him up with a sponsorship. So they actually sent me a, a bunch of stuff um, like immediately after that. And then like kept me kind of in a, a loop um, saying like, Hey, we're putting together something for the trials, like here in, in a couple months, like we'll, we'll let you know. Uh, Cause at the time I think I'd gotten like a 10% off like discount code is after they sent me a box of stuff. Um, and then they, they rolled out that program, which was, which was awesome um, because they actually, I think rolled it out like right before I ran CIM. So um, I think I was one of the first technically Tracksmith guys to get that uh, Tracksmith OT Q program where they sent us um, just like $250 worth of credit to their website every um, three months, plus a shipment of, it was at the time, Linden and True Coffee. I think it's just uh, just Linden times two, right? Is that who you say? Yeah. Yes. Um, and Ryan Linden, great guy, by the way, buy that coffee. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was, it was the first time in a very long time I'd felt like a, like a sponsored runner right out of college. I'd, um, I'd gotten a Skechers sponsorship when they had like kind of put together an actual like Skechers performance team that's no longer exists. Um, but it was really cool getting that little like discount or that card with uh, the money on it every couple of months and a shipment of coffee that had like their signatures like uh, on it. And there's like, Oh, this is, this is pretty awesome. I think they, there's been super successful. And um, if, if you looked at the marathon project last month, there are so many Tracksmith kits um, and they're just really nice guys um, at, at the trials. They set up a hospitality room. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew that where for the whole weekend for three days, they were offering free massages in there whenever you signed up and there was um, openings there was snacks. There was a coffee bar where they had the guy who writes meter magazine was in there. He, it wasn't just like they had a big thing of a pot of coffee. He would hand pour the coffee for you with linden beans um, for you on, on the spot. So you had to wait a little bit. It was like a coffee concierge service. Um, any snack you could want, they had bottle decorating things that had bottles for you, water. Um, it's just kind of a lounge to go and hang out with Tracksmith uh, teammates. So they've done such an awesome job in, in putting together this, this community of runners that, 
you know, they really didn't have to. They, they could still pretty much get by with, with their really good product and stuff, but it's cool that they've spent extra money to, to give people who don't run for money. I don't make any money off of running like outside of like sometimes a Detroit marathon check. Like this is still mostly for fun. So it, it is cool that they, you know, are out, they say blue collar runner, you know, maybe really expensive gear. They really are helping out a lot of guys who just are putting in the mileage with full-time jobs. Absolutely. And you were one of hundreds of people on the course. I was there that day and, and just literally every third runner was blue, red, white, tracksmith. Um, yeah. So could you walk us through the experience of the trials? The trials is one of the best and worst experiences I've ever had. I think I trained, I think total start to start of training to the day of the marathon was five weeks of running. Um, I, I unfortunately was gearing up for a really great training cycle on uh, the, in the previous fall, I was really excited for it. I stupidly did, um, a 50 mile race, like a month after doing a 50 K in Romania as like, I wanted to redeem myself. I, I had strained a hamstring, um, on a shakeout run in Romania, preparing for the world 50 K cha- road championships, strained my hamstring, ran pretty poorly, limped my way through the last 10 miles. And then my response, instead of taking time to recover and heal was, uh, let's sign up for a 50 mile in Illinois on a gravel uh, path, like a essentially like a rail trail. And like, let's just go out there and redeem myself. And I ran that 50 miles in vapor flies and you get those micro slips the entire time. I'm not sure if you've ever run like on a rail trail in vapor flies, but there's pretty much a limit to how long you should run in those on a slippery surface. And I ran very hard, um, went out at world record pace for 50 miles for almost 30 miles. Um, uh, and predictably bonked really hard and pulled out at mile 41, uh, puking everywhere. And about three weeks later, as I was gearing up to train for the trials, I was out on a shakeout run with my high school kids. And I basically felt a pop in my, uh, lower calf Achilles area and spent all of November, all of December and most of January unable to run even a mile. Um, the guys at Adams sports medicine in Novi, and try recovery in Novi as well. Essentially the only reason I was able to run the trials, I got dry needling. I got, I got everything that you could do under the sun, dry needling, deep tissue massage, um, like kinesiology massages. I got on the ultra G, um, I got on the spin bike. I did every single thing I could, but started to see that the dream of finishing top 25, which was like the, the dream goal at the trials, I saw that fade. So then plan B was let's make sure I can run the trials because I hope to be on the 2024 line, but nothing is a given and in, in running a career could end tomorrow. Um, you always have to take advantage of the opportunities you have. So um, it was like overwhelmed to be there. It was an amazing experience. My family was there. I was choking up on the starting line. Cause it's just like, I was really, I've worked for uh, 13 years or 20, no, sorry, like 22 years at running at this point, started running at age seven. And I was like, this is what I've dreamed of. There's pictures of me at the Olympic training center when I was like an eight year old kid in Colorado Springs, my parents standing on like a metal stand there. This is like been my lifelong dream. Um, and I went out at a pace way faster than I knew I could maintain. I think the longest work that I had done was like an eight mile tempo going into that. And the eight mile tempo was slower than my PR marathon pace. And it felt extremely hard. And actually like Matt Melvin went the full 10. I was running with him. I told him I was going to do 10 at mile seven. I said, dude, I'm only doing one more mile. I can't, I can't do this for 10. And he said, okay. And he zoomed by me. Um, and 
I ran pretty well for about 12 miles and then I ran pretty poorly for 14.2. I, I don't even remember my time. I think it was 2.30 something. It was pretty slow. Um, so I felt every single hill in that race, which there were many of, it was honestly like running a marathon in the Barton Hills in Ann Arbor, um, except for if you ran into a headwind the entire time. Um, so it was not the easiest course to go to um, on five weeks of training, um, but I didn't drop out and that was never in the cards. Even if I re-injured my Achilles, I was crossing that finish line. There was literally nothing that was gonna keep me from doing that. Um, so I'm really happy I, I still went out there and, Honestly, I, I knew that I was telling people I was going to go out easy and try and run a pretty conservative race without being fit. But I, I knew like on the starting line, I was like, no, I'm going to go out fast. Like I'm at the Olympic trials. I'm not going to jog this thing um, no matter what happens. So I put a good effort into that and I gave everything I could that day. Um, I'm hoping that's I get some fuel from that for uh, for 2024, which I, I hope they keep it to 2024 for the next Olympics and, and trials because I have some unfinished business at the trials. I still would like to say in, in three years, I would like to run, um, I don't know, under 215 on the next trials course. And I guess like how, how much, it sounds like you did, um, I mean, you're talking about how you're doing everything you could to even just make it uh, to the start line or cross the finish line. So just how much of an honor is it to take part in an event like that with all these guys, you know, you're, you're towing the line with guys like Galen Rupp and Bernard Lagat and something like that. And I know you've, you've competed at a high level, your entire life basically but there's is there like a part of you that gets a little like starstruck maybe when you're oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> um the year i so my first boston was the year that meb won and i did the same kind of thing that was after that was the first spring after my detroit marathon i went into that race on like three weeks of training ran very poorly as well but it, it was the first year post bombing as like, nothing's preventing me from running this i'm gonna run this race so the next year i did boston I was like, oh shoot, I'm absolutely gonna like warm up right behind Meb Kopleski. And I did, they, there's just a little shakeout thing they have for the like elites there. And I spent my whole warm up running like 10 feet behind Meb Kopleski like, on purpose. I was like, hey, there's very few opportunities in the world where you can like jog creepily behind a, a Boston champion. This is the same thing at the trials. Like, I mean, I've mixed feelings about Rupp, but like when I run by him, I'm like, that's Galen Rupp. Like, that's Galen Rupp, like the Olympic medalist, Galen Rupp. And, it's just kind of like crazy to see that people who, you know, like had posters on my wall in, in high school and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm not good enough to not be starstruck by those people. It still is like pretty awesome. Uh, and the other thing about it is uh, because I've been running for so long, I've run at a decently high level for enough time. There were like some of my high school competitors, like people I raced in my district championships and regional championships. And then all throughout high uh, college that I saw at the trials that were in the race as well. So it was really cool. So like I did my shakeout jog, the day before the race with a bunch of my uh, friends from Texas that I raced from 11th grade all the way till today. So um, it, that was really awesome. Just like looking at them, we had this understanding like, Hey man, like I'm glad you're still getting after it out here. And um, it's just cool to see the guys that you've always raced no longer be like your, your enemies on the line and just being like people you're actually really earnestly wishing have a great race. And um, cause you know, they're doing the same thing as you. They're not being paid for it either. And that kind of that kind of brings us to kind of the next the next thing that me and Colin like to talk about. And this is this is this is a question I have for both of you. Like, you guys, I mean, I, I know Colin pretty well, and he's 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 always running. Like, sometimes we say he's like a psychopath with like how much running he's doing. And uh, both of you guys, with doing the amount of running that you do, and uh, also being full time teachers and coaches, like, how do you guys like balance all that training and 
uh, continue to like be like the teacher and coach that you want to be. Colin, you go first. <laughs> Give me some wait time. Um, you know, it's, it can be really difficult, but I think I found that when I can budget out my week in advance from both a training standpoint, you know, my social obligations, my, you know, my family, and then spending time with my girlfriend. And if I can look ahead and say, okay, I've got, you know, a Tuesday workout, a Friday workout, I have papers I got to get back by, by Thursday. If I head into the week like that, like I'm in a much better position than if it's Sunday night, I'm like, what, what's this week again? I will say, and I'm sure you could attest to this, that September to November and March to May are just a grind, absolute grind. I feel like I'm just constantly on the go. And I actually, you know, to the point where last spring I had asked our, our head coach, hey, you know, I, I really think I need to be able to, to say I'm prioritizing my own running at least, you know, one of these days a week. So uh, is it okay if I miss practice one day a week? And, and that was going to be my workout day. And I felt a lot of guilt about that. Then the, the pandemic hit and, and it wasn't really much of a factor. So yeah, I would just say that budgeting time in advance and recognizing that it's not just all about the running. And I do have to remind myself that sometimes. Yeah, same thing. The September, or even August to some extent, the September to November, uh, every single year, I basically cut my mileage in, in half, um, which, which is why I'm, I'm kind of more of a either really late fall marathoner. Like CIM is perfect. It's December. I can really start, really start training during championship season of cross country and then get all of my workouts to myself going into that race. Um, things like Chicago and even Detroit and, and New York, really hard to swing. New York's not even an option anymore. If you coach a state level team, it's the same weekend. You know, I certainly, I, I could prioritize running. Um, I don't, I, it's just that I put school first for, for a lot of things. Um, and it, you all know as teachers, it's just, if you, if you don't, it's not very fun. <laughs> if you're not giving a, a pretty good effort at school, um, you're not, you don't teach very well. It's not fun if you don't teach very well. I prioritize probably differently than someone else of my caliber of running would. Um, but I, I honestly don't care that much <laughs> when my mileage drops to 40 in uh, October, because the only time I have to run is after standing up for three hours at a dual meet on a cold, rainy Wednesday. Um, I don't sweat skipping that run. I, I chalk it up to, mm, it's kind of like training, standing outside being miserable for that long and sprinting to a couple parts on a course. Maybe I'll do the warm up or cool down with them or there's meets I go to where I get in 12 miles total, but that 12 miles is built up of like, I'll get there 30 minutes early and I'll run for 30 minutes while they like set up the tent and then I'll do the warm up with them. And then I will like sprint to different parts of the course without timing it. And then I'll do their cool down with them and they'll tack on three miles to the cool down. Like it's all up to the mileage, but 12 miles done in the span of like three hours. I'm not sure how that really works fitness wise, but it's just kind of the, the life you choose when you commit to coaching. I, I think um, if you just taught, just taught, it's still English teaching kind of sucks. We have a lot of grading to do, but um, I think I could certainly run a lot more mileage. But when you when you commit to coaching, it is it is essentially taking a second job. Um, and I think I find it very hard to to be able to prioritize my training. And I think same with with Colin. I, I do skip some some days when I have my own workout. And I was able to do that in my previous school, and I think I could do it at Celine. They have like four distance coaches, um, but. I, I wouldn't trade it. You'll, you'll know from if, if you decide to coach Ryan, when you see 
it's not even just the kid that wins the meet. I've been uh, lucky enough to coach a, a state champion at this point. But when you see a kid who's as a freshman who's running 25 minutes go sub 19 for his first time, it's it's worth any of the runs you skip. It really is a, a moment that only a coach can understand. I think that like cheesy thing is you get when you're a coach, you get called coach for life. Um, I'm still running with with graduates who are now 22 years old who uh, still call me Coach O. I'm like, call me Zach. That's fine. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It's uh, I definitely think that every fall it's probably going to be the same. Um, every fall it's like, no, okay, I'll run a little less because I got to be at these random meets. Um, but yeah, balancing it with teaching is really hard. Um, the pandemic has been horrible in a lot of ways. The pandemic has been great for running. Um, I've got my, one of my best years of training ever. Like, I don't think I've trained this well since college or in terms of like time that I, I had to myself to train, you know, I, I could double on, on my prep because I'm at home and no one knows if I'm here or not. Uh, that ends next week. We go back to the classroom, but, um, yeah, it, it's been a pretty good year of training. And I, I started to realize like, oh, I'm getting nine hours of sleep every single night. This is amazing. Um, once I go back to the classroom, there, there frequently is weeks where I average five to six hours of sleep a night because I stupidly assign papers to three different classes um, and have like a week to grade them before the like trimester ends. And oh, it's kind of my fault. But yeah, it, it's, it's pretty tough with teaching. But I don't know. There's, there's enough um, gratification in teaching that I don't worry about the, what I, if I could run a minute faster in a marathon, uh, it doesn't really matter that much in like the grand scheme of things. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, one, one of the things you said about, I, we were going to ask, I was going to ask like, hey, you guys, would you guys even trade it for anything? And I don't think either of you would, but, and, and you mentioned the gratification when I was a sports reporter in Bryan, Bryan, Ohio, it was kind of like a similar thing. I'd, I'd see kids go from like their freshman year to their senior year, just interviewing them and covering them. And I saw, I saw a kid win a state title in the hundred meter dash or like kids would like chant my name at basketball games and stuff. So it was kind of like a, a humbling experience, which is kind of what made me kind of decide to change, change up like my career and go back to school and be like a teacher and uh, a coach in whatever capacity I decide to be. But, but yeah, that, that's awesome. Uh, so I guess I have uh, some, some things to look, look forward to, I guess, in some busy days. It won't always be easy. <laughs> Just know that in advance. <laughs> there are going to be some horrible, horrible days where you're, you know, sitting at your table at midnight grading four hours into grading. And you're just like, why did I, why did I choose this? But just like the random funny thing that a kid says to you at nine in the morning that makes you laugh in the middle of class, like it's worth it. You get to work with kids. I tell, I tell the kids the first day of school every year when I'm introducing myself, that one of the reasons I decided to be a teacher is I don't think I would enjoy working with adults <laughs> like i've got teacher co-workers but i like spending my days with youthful hilarious weird kids who are just being themselves instead of you know my my nightmare is having to make like uh i don't know like water jug talk like just talk about the weather or the game on tv instead i can talk about random kid shows or whatever is happening and like memes and on twitter I guess, yeah, like, what, what would be your guys's, like, for someone like me who is going into it, like, what, what is, like, your biggest advice for, like, me trying to, like, going into become, like, a teacher and a coach? You know, I would, I would echo Zach's sentiment that when you're not teaching well, it's not fun. Like, it's just not. And you can, you can wing it, and especially just the longer you're in the classroom, you can 
oh yeah, I taught this lesson a year ago. I think it went like that. And, and you get through, but I would say more important though is, and my principal, I doubt he'll ever listen to this, but he's all about form relationships with your students, have great report um, with them, care more about them as people than them as students. And that's always been something I feel like I've done naturally, but I've really consciously tried to do it. And this semester in particular with, with being you know, almost half of it entirely on Zoom. Like it's been a lot harder to get to know them, you know, through a screen. You know, you sat in on my class this morning and it, it's not always, it's not always easy, Ryan, but I would say that that sometimes you just see a flip switch when the kid knows like, oh, like Mr. Riley, like, yeah, he kind of cares how I do on this assignment, but he cares more on like how I'm developing, how my, my mental health is. And you just do that by just talking to them and opening up. Um, and I'm sure Zach would echo that. That happens in coaching every day. It's fun to sweat over a training plan, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is just probably the, the single question, how are you doing? Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. And not to disparage like the lessons you teach, like in terms of content, but the kid isn't gonna remember you 10 years from, from now about how well you taught I don't know, I taught comma splices this week to 10th graders. They're not gonna remember that you taught them comma splices, but they will remember that they that you were the only person that maybe they felt comfortable talking about their life with, or they felt comfortable walking into the classroom. It's way, way more important. I 100% I build relationships first, because um, ultimately if they don't learn how to analyze literature, it's not that big of a deal as an English teacher. If they never read a book again, I won't cry over it but I want to make sure they're good people who are not afraid to be themselves. That's, that's the, and that's kind of one of your jobs as an English teacher. It's, it's not, can they, um, I don't know, can, can they do this function that's going to allow them to be successful in calculus? It's we read books that talk about important issues and really we read those so we can talk about what it means to live a good life and, and be a good person. So I think it's way more important that you are like a genuine person in the room and that there, there's a lot of different ways to be a good teacher. I'm one of the people that likes to be very warm and, and welcoming and, and just like to show the kids like, hey, you don't have to come in here thinking you're going to get yelled at or, or like that this is a super serious place. Like be comfortable. Like we'll learn if we're all comfortable and we, we know each other. Um, and, and that goes a really long way. Um, I, I think that's really important. And also you'll enjoy it more if you actually like the kids that no matter where you go, you're going to meet teachers that are jaded that just genuinely don't like kids. And I go, I look at them like, why do you do this job if you don't like kids? That it would be terrible. If you didn't like kids, it would be the worst job for you. Um, I genuinely like kids. They're hilarious. Um, and, and I like talking to them and, and just, you know, goofing around in class or like telling a joke that makes them groan. It's, that's the stuff that like, they'll remember you for. So um, yeah. And, and if you're not putting actual effort into it, you're, you're not going to like it. I mean, you could show up and wing it. If you're a moderately smart person, you could wing most of teaching. I get the most out of um, teaching things that I care about and I'm actually interested in because and the kids can see that I'm interested in it. Um, I, I do a lot of background work where I do a lot of reading. I listen to a lot of podcasts related to what I'm going to talk about that week um, because they can see me as I light up and I'm like, Oh, did you know this? And I'll like talk about some extra stuff, even if it's just kind of geeking out about some subject. If the kids say like, Mr. O really cares about this, they might just be a, a little bit more tuned in. And I won't feel like I'm just repeating myself all day. If I'm talking about something I want to talk about, it's kind of weird getting paid to do something you like doing anyway. On a more sobering note, 
how difficult are, are days like today as a teacher when, when you have sensitive topics, you know, whether it just in the last year, Black Lives Matter protest, coronavirus, uh, obviously yesterday's insurrection at the Capitol. Like, how do you broach those topics with your students? And while it's, it's so difficult, because I did it this morning, like you have an obligation to guide their critical thought. Like, how do you approach those topics? Yeah, so we were pretty lucky. We got, and that was unsuspected. We got an email from our principal um, last night, like saying like, this was a really dark day for our country. This was insurrection. This was unacceptable on all fronts. So he gave us the go ahead to be like, you can tell them that this was inappropriate, not acceptable. He didn't say necessarily like remain neutral, but he said like, always remember, like you're talking to a very diverse group of kids with political beliefs everywhere. But it was nice to, to know the administration support was there to be like, look, if you need to talk about this with your kids, we're, we're telling you, go ahead and do it. But I honestly didn't have many deep discussions today because on, on Zoom, I just didn't feel like it was a great place to do it. Um, you know, you could have a lot of kids who maybe wanted to say something that aren't in that like safe classroom. Um, they're at home or maybe don't want to talk about it in front of their their guardians or or their siblings or whoever may be at the house. Uh, maybe they have different political beliefs or feelings than their parents do or, you know, all those kind of things. So I think that's one of the big downsides of, of not being in the classroom right now is this major event happens and they don't have a real space to, to talk about it in, in a, a protected environment. Um, and they're probably watching the news all day and just doom scrolling as much as we are. So I think I'm going to try and really address a lot more of that stuff next week when we go back to the classroom. Cause you know, when you've got that door closed, it really is this, this sanctum. When, when you're in control of the classroom, you, you can have this space where you can really talk about things that are, I'm not super excited to talk about them. I wish this was a thing that never happened, but um, it, it is, the kids really will listen to you as a teacher. It's, it's kind of crazy. In some ways they'll believe like almost everything you say, which is why sometimes Another piece of advice I would have given in the previous question is sometimes you have to lie to kids about things that they like. I pretend to care about so much stuff that I do not care about um, because it will hook a kid. I had a kid last trimester that um, he, he told me that professional wrestling is his favorite thing. His whole room is decorated like that. It's, it's all he cares about. And so like, oh, yeah. I love the undertaker growing up. Like I loved watching the undertaker and stone cold, Steve Austin. He's like, you like pro wrestling. I was like, Oh yeah, I love it. I've watched it since 1997 or so. Um, but he's would send me emails of the gifts he got over Christmas. He, he got undertaker socks and like those kind of things are, if you don't like annoyingly pretend to care, but just like feign some kind of interest because maybe their, their guardians at home don't care at all about that stuff and tune them out. Maybe their friends don't. Is that kind of stuff where you're like, Oh yeah, I'll talk to you about this and pretend to know what you're talking about. They really like, Oh, I can trip like Mr. O, he will listen to anything I say. So it's the same kind of thing when, when you talk about these subjects that maybe they've only heard things on social media or seen memes about it. When, when you kind of take the floor with that, they really do listen. Cause like, Oh, I generally like this guy. I'll hear him out on this. So it's kind of scary how much responsibility we have at the same time uh, on this. It's, it's a lot of pressure, um, but it's, it's one of the, the perks of the job too, is we're like making a difference. I'm hoping it's a little bit easier in, in the coming years. I sure hope, but we'll see. Yeah, Zach, I mean, the last, I don't know, last two years, it have been just really difficult. So difficult. I mean, last four years really um, in some ways. And um, I'll allude again, Ryan sat in on, my, my second hour today, and I, I 
you know, led with a similar thing, like, Hey, you guys, like, I want to allow you guys to this to be a space where you can share any opinions you have. I'm always a sounding board. Uh, And, you know, they're pretty, pretty quiet, really not much happened. And then literally the, the next hour, five minutes after Ryan logs off, I had these like four or five incredible students just step up and voice very, very strong, eloquent, empathetic opinions. And I'm just like cheering inside, but also like, like, okay, cool. Thank you. Anyone else? And I agree with you. Like it's, it's so important to give them a space. And even if they don't bite, you still got to give them that space. So I would, I would uh, echo that advice to Ryan. I'll take it. uh, I'll, uh, I'll, take it as, and use as best as, as best I can. You'll be great. I know you will. Um, I think the, the last piece of advice I'd have on that, cause I was really nervous uh, today. Like before each class I had like, I don't know, just like a little bit of like nervous sweat. It's like, Oh man, like, okay. Like, here we go. Um, I, I think it's important to like, it's okay to be nervous, but like the overriding thought you should have is like, you know, it's really easy to avoid the hard stuff, but like this is our, our duty is to make sure that we are role models for our students. So it's very easy to just be like, mm, I'm just going to like avoid everything. But like, I ended up talking about like uh, race and ethnicity today and um, some like difficult topics. And it's, it's way more harmful to skip over those things, even if it's going to make you uncomfortable to your students. Um, you just have to be willing to be vulnerable. Absolutely. If we could, get back to a couple of questions about running to, to kind of move towards the end of the, the podcast. So that was really great, really great tangent on, on teaching. I feel like for the average runner 2020 was a rough year, but you, I think have PR'd at, at I think at least three or four distances perhaps. So could you tell us what it was like, you know, maybe walk us just through the beginning of quarantine and then you know, those summertime trials and the Tracksmith Trials of Miles Racing Series, like how did that all play a role in, in keeping you motivated and, and running well? So uh, so the trials were the were February 29th, which is the first day that someone in the United States died of COVID-19. Um, and it was pretty wild because like ran the trials, like we flew home and like, I think like two or three people on the plane were wearing masks and we just didn't even think about it. We're just like, Oh, let's wash our hands. If we like touch something or, or whatever, we're like, mm, not a big deal. And then that week we went to a sold out concert in Detroit. That was like, like arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, everybody. And there was bunched in. And then my school closed like one week later. Um, I was like, wow, this really like this escalated pretty quickly. I re- we really had no idea because the, the way, you know, it was introduced to the world. It's like, Oh, it's not going to happen here. And then it certainly happened here. And in Metro Detroit, it really hit hard. I was teaching in Dearborn and Dearborn and Detroit were hit first before the whole state. And I had multiple parents in uh, March, uh, parents in March with COVID-19 of of students I was teaching. And I had students get it in April um, that were online and, you know, didn't show up on on Zoom for for two weeks and all this stuff. But with with my that was really, really hard. And I needed some kind of escape. And with my running, it had timed out where I'd gotten healthy right before the trials I didn't really take a break. I didn't do workouts for a couple of weeks, but as soon as I got home from the trials, I decided to start building a base that I never built up. Just use like that race as a training stimulus. Um, and with being at home and we didn't have all these formal like structures that we have now, I don't know what it was like for you, Colin, but 
we were just kind of allowed to post a schedule of assignments for the week and we could tell them when we wanted them to tune in. We didn't have them tuning in a, like a bell schedule or anything like that. Um, so it was a lot, it was very much like I would, I would post all the things, I would record lecture videos and I would have the entire day to go run either in the morning or in the evening. And, you know, for a little bit, it's like, oh, this is kind of nice. Like April is like, maybe we all needed this break. And I think that's what some of us were saying, right? Like, oh, this will be the time where we, we get in touch with ourselves and we learn how to bake bread and, and cook. And like, <laughs> we'll be back to school in May, no big deal. And then as we saw in May, it started to get worse. And then June and, and July come around um, and, you know, that whole school semester is essentially botched the great the great loss in, in educational history is how many kids fall behind because of that semester so running was this escape where it was the only thing I think you probably both felt this it was the only thing during the day that felt normal just going out for a run you're like oh like look the world is still here I can go for a run my legs can take me from point a to point b you know sometimes with a, a mask on or on a run but still it felt like the world was back to normal um and I decided, I know a lot of people decided to take a break from training seriously with no races on the table, but I kind of had that fuel and, and that fire from uh, not running well at the trials. I was like, no, I'm, I want to get in really good shape. And I was thinking, I was like, well, if it's going to be a while before I'm back in the classroom, there's no excuses for me not to really, really get back to where I want to be. Um, so I, I started putting in the mileage, I got up to 80, 90 miles a week. And then at just perfect timing, they announced that Tracksmith Miles of Trial series. And I was like, this is exactly what I needed. And it hit at the perfect time. I was like, I'm in really good shape. Like, I'm going to be able to nail these, these races. I wasn't doing time trials or anything before that. I'd done one 5K um, like two days before the 4th of July, just because I'd run enough good workouts. I was like, I asked my coach, like, hey, can I just do a 5K next week? I, I've broken 15 every year since 2008. So I told him, I was like, I want to maintain that streak for my, my goal is, I don't know, 20 years would be kind of cool. It's going to be tough. But um, I was like, yeah, can I go and, and try and, and break 15? I, you know, I haven't done it in a full year. I'd see what I could do and went and ran 1435 for that um, with, I think I was with Matt Melvin out there at Fairyfield. I was like, oh, it's kind of fun. And then they announced the time trial series like two weeks later. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is great. We're, they're going to be posting leaderboards and I can race these distances that I just haven't raced in forever. And 8k I haven't raced since college. And then a 6k I've never raced. And I, I at the back of my mind is like my 10k PR is my weakest PR out of all my PRs. And I was like, if I could run a 10k PR at 29 that I set when I was 20, that would be pretty fantastic. And just kind of all the, all the puzzle pieces fit together at the right time. And went out in 1501 to close off that series and ran 1442 uh, or so on, on the back end of that, uh, that race feeling just phenomenal closing my last three K and 842 um, to set an all time best 10 KPR on a cold track in October. Um, just all that work I had put in since March really, really paid off. And my current training, I'm now essentially in better shape than I ever was in college no races on the calendar and uh, we're having a baby in April. So definitely no races anytime soon, but when, when races come back, I'll be ready to be on essentially a whole new level. Um, so I, I, I decided not to let, uh, you know, the, the craziness of this world uh, prevent me from doing the, the thing that I do best. Um, it certainly took a toll mentally and there were days that were just awful, but in terms of my running, I decided that was the thing I was going to keep as consistent as possible. And, my, my big goal for next fall is whatever marathon happens and where I, wherever I have to go to do it should be vaccinated starting next week. Um, I would like to run 214 next fall. 
everything I'm doing now until next fall, even training with a baby in, in this summer, it'll be with that. That's the goal I've, I've committed to is I want to be crossing that line in a very fast time. Absolutely. Well, you, you opened, uh, you opened the door. We're going to ask you a little early, one of our end of podcast questions. Um, first of all, congrats to you, you and your wife, Meg, right? Yep. That's, uh, and you said due in April. That's, that's super exciting. So do you think dad strength is going to correlate to about four minutes and over a marathon? Like what do you think is, what's the, the equation? I hope so. I'm, I'm hoping that takes off a good five seconds per mile. I think it, that I can get used to sleep deprivation training. Uh, it'll definitely help. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, I, I think we've covered a wealth of topics and um, it's been really fun, but we do have a couple, couple more end of podcast questions that we, we like to you know, keep a couple consistent with our guests and then ask a few that are tailored to the guests. So you, you ready for these? Let's do it. All right. So this podcast, Miles in the Mitten, is you know, meant to explore the stories of, of Michigan runners, but we also like to brag about how great our state is to run in. So could you tell us where is your favorite place to run in Michigan and tell us why? The Barton Hills in Ann Arbor, um, because as you saw last week, Colin, you can get 1500 feet of climbing in a 16 mile run. Uh, you get to see the Barton Pond. It's beautiful. The houses up there are you know, among the prettiest houses in the Midwest. Um, it, it's just my favorite place to run. You know, I don't know if I appreciated the scenery as I was sucking wind, but uh, I'll take your word for it when I'm a little fitter. Next question. So um, I know that you have been in the past uh, a Noon ambassador, and uh, I, I too am a big fan of Noon. I'm actually an ambassador for 2021, which is I was excited to hear. But awesome. um, thank you. What's your favorite flavor? What's your favorite Noon flavor? Um, I, I like the cherry lime. Um, and it, there was a the cola special edition. I don't know if you ever had any of that, but the, the special like cola flavor that they, it was, I guess one of their original flavors, they brought back limited time last year and uh, I was no longer a new ambassador. I forgot to apply. And my friend uh, Matt saved like four of his uh, tubes for me and, and gave them to me. And I, I try to keep those like for special runs basically. Cause it, it tastes like flat Coke that you would have in a marathon or an ultra. And, oh, so good. And it had a little bit of caffeine. You got to see if you can find that. They're just like limited edition. That sounds delicious. I, I love Coke way too much. Um, They're really good. Yeah. What's your record for most noon tablets consumed in one day? Mm, well, I've done a couple 50 milers. So probably, probably five or six in a race. That sounds about right. Yeah. Five or six in six hours. Awesome. And I have a, I have a couple questions for you as a Michigan grad and we are, we are Michigan state grad. So I guess uh, there's a little bit of a battleground uh, there between us, but what, how do you feel about Jim Harbaugh and should Michigan re-sign him for like a six year contract or whatever? As, as a Michigan state fan, I would love for Jim Harbaugh. To <laughs> yeah, I bet you would to stay. <laughs> oh man. I mean, I started at Michigan in 2009 knowing not much about the football program because I didn't grow up here, but like I knew that Michigan was a great team. Like I had heard of Bo, he's, he's a nationwide known coach. And, um, and I got to meet, um, this is going to make me look like a very bad Michigan fan. Uh, who's the coach right before then, the, the last real winning coach um, in 2006? Lloyd Carr. 
Lloyd Carr. Yeah. So I, I knew that they had had a pretty good team, but in high school, I watched that loss to Appalachian state. And I remember being like, Ooh, Michigan was like my top choice at that moment. I was like, oh, I hope they're not that bad. Um, and then through my college career, I saw Rich Rodriguez and Brady Hoke. So Harbaugh is still better than that was, but I, 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 I would like to try something new. Um, bring in an SEC coach. Just, just bring in an SEC coach, please. Just try it out. Hire someone from Alabama. A bad uh, quarantine activity that I've had is trolling Michigan football Facebook pages about how much I think Jim Harbaugh has gotten a raw deal. And how like Michigan fans are just giving them a chance. You, you tweeting at Scott Bell all day? No, no, no. I know that guy. He's uh, he he likes to troll Michigan State a lot. But. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, uh, our our last uh question is so Michigan is is the school of like the Fab Five of the basketball team in the early '90s. So if you had to put together a pickup basketball team, a Fab Five, but only of like U of M runners like who are good at basketball, maybe who would, who would those five uh, people be? U of M runners who are good at basketball. Um, well, Nick Willis, I'm not sure if he's any good at basketball. I've never seen him play, but he's obsessed with the Pistons. He tweets about the NBA a lot. Uh, I run with him often. I, <laughs> he doesn't look like a good basketball player, but I'd pick him because it seems like he has knowledge of the game. Um, there's a guy who graduated in, I think, 2008, right before I started at Michigan named Justin Schweitzer was a big 10 champ and a sub four miler and he was also i think on an all the michigan like all state basketball team he was quite good so i'd have to choose him because he actually could have played college basketball oh man outside of that i ran with some very uncoordinated guys for my four years at michigan i wouldn't choose any of i don't think i'd choose a single teammate that i had i'd choose mason Furlick because he's like six three and he just stand by the post um no offense to Mason. He doesn't look particularly good at base basketball. He weighs like the same as me and he's like five inches taller. Um, uh, that's three. You can, you can go any runner in Michigan history. You can go, you can go like Alan Webb. Would you put Alan on your, on your no, team? He's short. <laughs> all the good, all the good Michigan runners are tiny guys like uh, Nate Brandon. Again, not very tall. I wouldn't choose him. Heights everything in, in, uh, in, in basketball oh you know what there's a, a guy from years back um um i think probably like donikowski i think if i'm remembering the name right i think he was quite good at hockey and basketball he was like one of those multi-sport guys choose him that's is that five now or is that that's four, four. you got one four. more last one i would do um <laughs> i would i guess what i would about- throw in, in his prime alan webb on there just to, you know, be that guy who sprints down the court. <laughs> his, his best bet. Cool that you picked uh, Justin Schweitzer. He actually went to my high school, Watford Kettering. Oh, like, there we go. And he was like local legend. It's like all we talked about. And, like, he was good at I, I know that he was good at every sport. I think I've met him one time. All right. Well, Zach, thank you for, for chatting with us. Wishing you the best in, in the, your next several years of running. I'm, I'm sure I'll spend several weekend long runs with you, but you know, whether it's, it's a marathon on the roads or if it's an ultra or maybe mountain championships, uh, wherever your, your legs take you, wishing you the best. And, and of course, you know, Ryan, maybe, maybe we'll all see each other one day on, on the coaching circuit. Yeah. And be down to talk teaching with you guys anytime, especially post pandemic. It's always nice to bounce ideas. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Well, Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem.